Hello everyone, welcome to another episode of Into the Bytecode. Today I sat down with Austin Griffith. Austin's a friend and someone I've worked with pretty extensively in our shared time at the Ethereum Foundation. I think he's one of the best people around and has done as much as anyone for growing the ecosystem. In this conversation, we talk about Austin's personal journey over the last two years. We take a tour through the different projects he's worked on, starting with ETH.Build, the graphical interface for working with smart contracts, moving to Scaffold ETH, his development starter kit that has really taken off and been used by thousands and thousands of developers, and moving on to the Build Guild, and then finally the Moonshot Collective. These last two being DAO-like collections of developers who work on prototyping interesting new ideas. And throughout this, we also go down a few fun tangents around loot, pleaser DAOs, Doge NFT, DAO tooling, and we get to hear a walkthrough of Austin's curriculum for bringing a new developer into the space. I consider Austin to be a gem of the ecosystem, and I feel lucky that we have him here. And with that, I'll leave you to the conversation. In the last couple of years that there's been a whole bunch of crazy stuff with uh, you know scaffold ETH and build guild and ETH.build and what have you worked on? What are the big what are the big kind of turning points of the journey? So yes, let's start with ETH build there probably. Like ETH build was this really visceral if you go to ETH.build, there's a sandbox, you can drop in a key pair, you can uh, you know drop in a signature, you can sign a message, you can recover that message just really visceral kind of poke at things. And then like when loot came out, I had a little like quickly wired together a little dashboard that would go talk to the loot contract and tell me which ones weren't minted yet. And then let me set up a MetaMask transaction to mint. So it's like full web three. It's just clunky cause it's so big, but it helps me talk through the concepts, right? Talk through wow. key pairs, talk through hashes. And if you go to ETH.build, there's a full curriculum there starting with you know, hashes, key pairs, transactions, distributed ledgers, Byzantine general problem, like, which is like beyond me, right? Like I'm not, I'm not like a cosi researcher, right? I'm just building stuff on top of this and seeing what sticks. But uh, then leading up to, you know, blockchain and smart contracts. So that was ETH.build. It, Wait, hold up. Yeah. So, so you said when Loot came out, you used ETH.build to to basically interact with the smart contract while, while the Quickly. rest of us plebs were on, yes, on Etherscan, Etherscan yes. like reading and writing to the contract, exactly. which I also thought was, was really, really cool. Like that, I feel like that's almost its own design pattern of not having a UI just made it so much cooler. I feel like it, it really like other builders, um, have to think about the fact that they want their smart contracts to be the canonical thing and the front end that they're building is one amongst many, but you can just not build the front end and just have the smart contracts and let everyone else just kind of figure out how they're going to interact with it. It, it feels low effort at first, but then you realize it's like kind of a statement, right? It's a statement on composability. It's a statement on openness. It's like just a composable piece and he's looking for everyone else to build the stuff around it. I, I did have that dashboard built, but I quickly shared it on my Twitter. So anybody who followed me could click the link and then they had the same dashboard ready to go. So 
that for what it's worth, I wasn't like hoarding it or anything. Yeah. <laughs> no, I mean you and hoarding don't go don't go together. <laughs> right. So okay, so that's eth.build. Yep. So it's basically this graphical interface that lets you I mean it's pretty pretty freaking elaborate, right? It's fun. Yeah, it's yeah. fun. Okay, so you built that. And, and I built that and I used it to create a curriculum. And I think that's key. Like there I, I used it to explain how these concepts work, like the fundamentals of of how blockchain and Ethereum work. Then uh, we moved on to scaffold ETH, right? So, so ETH build, and, and it's like, it's a tribute to, to you and Albert that I probably would have stuck with ETH build and I would have focused on that and it wasn't as high leverage as moving to scaffold ETH. And, and seeing that retrospectively, I'm super glad that I made that change because with scaffold ETH, it's having a ton of impact and it's real impact I can see, not, not just like, ETH build, I have this curriculum, people get it every once in a while, says, someone will say something nice, like, yeah, ETH build is fun. But with Scaffold ETH, I'm seeing apps every day, brand new apps getting deployed that I know came from that starter kit that probably wouldn't be here if it weren't for that starter kit. Yeah. And so, like, it's, so Scaffold ETH, should we dive into? Scaffold ETH yeah, is basically a, a DAP template, right? Yeah. It's, the, the theory is that it, it takes a lot of work to build your stack in Web3. Like mm-hmm. you, you, you bring in hard hat, you bring in ethers, uh, you, you probably have some kind of front end, getting all those things to talk, not having issues. Like who knows the chain ID isn't right. And you're talking with MetaMask. There's, there's so many reasons why your stack will go wrong. And so with scaffold ETH, we thought let's, let's put it all together and have it working out of the box. So you get right down to, and this is Albert, you get right down to that moment where you're tinkering with Solidity and you're seeing it update. And you, you add a uint and it shows up in the front end. You add a function to increment that uint and the new button shows up and you can hit increment. So you can get in this really tight dev loop with Solidity. So Scaffold ETH helps you start tinkering and get the, get the syntax down, get to be dangerous. Mm. But then what we found with that DAP template is People are building all these starter kits with this. Well, you know, we had an optimism starter kit. We have an NFT starter kit. We have like a DeFi leverage starter kit. Like all of a sudden it wasn't just the template. It was all of these new templates that were kind of extensions of the original template. So the idea was that, okay, like the, the base scaffold ETH template is you're trying to build a generic application on Ethereum. Here's kind of the basic stuff that you need. And then the NFT template would be you want to build an NFT project. So it comes with, I don't know, like, like IPFS a gallery. and, yep. and, and, and all IPFS, of that. exactly. Right. Yep. Or DeFi comes with uh, maybe the Aave SDK or the Gnosis Safe starter kits comes with the Gnosis Safe SDK. But, yeah. then, but then everything else is right where you need it to be in terms of if you've built one thing with Scaffold ETH, you know where everything else is. Yeah. There's, and there's burner wallets too. So you, you don't use the burner wallets usually in production. We did with Nifty Inc., but most of the time you don't want someone landing on a site and just getting a wallet. You want them to connect in and use their wallet. But it's so much easier to test and build an app when you just have burner wallets and you just click the button and it signs a transaction and sends it and you don't get a MetaMask dialogue and you don't get MetaMask telling you you need to switch networks and you don't get MetaMask telling you you're on the wrong chain ID. <laughs> you just hit the button and it does what you want it to do, right? Yeah. And that's, that's so much, much more powerful for a developer or a builder to be able to focus on first, how do I learn Solidity? Okay, I've got mappings, I've got payable functions, I've got contract-to-contract interaction, I'm getting this all down. Now, like, where do I go from here? And that's the, the speed run. It's probably the next like, piece to 
scaffold ETH. And that's like, so I started doing lots of mentorship sessions where it was, I don't know why I did this, but I just basically tweeted, <laughs> I basically tweeted like, cause, cause okay, so this is a lot of tangents here, but we kind yes. of have this theory that like there's a grip of developers kind of in orbit around Ethereum and every once in a while those orbits get close and that developer happens to pop in and start tinkering and thinking about things and like how do we capture them on that that close orbit right yeah and so with the speed run I use these mentorship sessions to help me figure out what I needed to teach what was interesting what were the magic moments uh, you and I talked about cron jobs the other day and the cron the cron job analogy to how you do a cron job in Ethereum really opens your whole mind up to like how Ethereum works. And it's like this massive multiplayer game and all these adversarial jerks can coordinate. So how, how does that go, the cron job example? Oh, it's, I think it's enlightening, right? Should we, should we go through it just to yeah, talk yeah. through it? Yeah, yeah, So So a lot of the people that I talk to on mentorship sessions are Web2 developers. So I lean into, okay, you've got a web server. People start using it it falls over, you set up a, a second server for redundancy, you start scaling up horizontally or vertically, right? You, you handle that, that load by having redundancy. Well, the redundancy on Ethereum is like, every single node has the entire chain and is, 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 is executing everything. And when you deploy a smart contract, it's not like going to one of those nodes. When you deploy that smart contract, it goes to all of those nodes. And when you want to update a value, everyone on the network has to update their value. So already there's like this crazy amount of redundancy. But, but thinking through more things that are natural for a Web2 dev to think about, the cron job is one of like these tasks where it's like, okay, so I've got this smart contract that does compounding interest. Every night I need to poke this thing. How do I do it? First, you're like Googling Ethereum cron job, right? Like you're, you're wondering, <laughs> is this part of it? it? Right, exactly. And then your second intuition is, well, I'll create a script and that script will check in at night and it will update the value, but that's super centralized and that script could fall over and it's not decentralized anymore. And there's not that level of redundancy anymore when there's this single machine. So the, the, the answer to this, and like there's chain link keepers now, but the answer to this in terms of just generic building on Ethereum is you have to incentivize someone to poke the contract. So you set up a rule that says this thing can be poked every night, right at midnight, if someone, or like once after midnight every night, you write that rule. And the second rule is whoever pokes it gets paid 0.01 ETH. And you incentivize them to check into the contract and all of a sudden you've created a cron job, but on Ethereum and it's a different paradigm. Yeah. That, that example really clicks for me. It's such a good way of explaining what's happening here. And it's like when I say that Ethereum is the greatest massive, and like I'm not the one that came up with this. Someone else, maybe Kane, I don't know who, who said this first on Twitter, but when they say Ethereum is the greatest massive multiplayer game ever created and you need to think of it like a massive multiplayer game, you need to think of these things like vending machines, like that, that helps illustrate it a lot. Right. Like when we talk about the metaverse, it's not actually a game that we're talking about. Like Ethereum itself, and even more than Ethereum, the platform, it's Ethereum, the community around it, and all of the interactions that these people are having with each other is the massively multiplayer game, yep. is the metaverse. I, I think I saw someone tweet about how the part of the metaverse is arguing about what the metaverse is. Like that's like us <laughs> arguing about it as part of what the meta, what makes the metaverse what it is. I don't know. Yeah. 
But thinking of these composable layers, the, the metaverse is like, okay, so I've got my loot over here and then permissionlessly someone creates this new thing that uses loot to do something else. And now all of a sudden we're playing this game from these illiquid SVGs. And that, that to me is the metaverse. Like at first I was like, oh, it's crypto voxels. It's me with my VR on. But it's, right. it's not exactly that, right? It's more all of these it's composable the things. Thing. It all includes all of the sub games that are, that are within it. Right. Well, and another thing that I was thinking recently is that like it's another riff on this point, which is that basically everything that's being built on Ethereum is is one thing, right? We talk about it as DeFi and NFTs and DAOs, and these are helpful conceptual constructs, but they're not actually separate things, right? It's like how in a university, you have a math department and a physics department and a chemistry department and a biology department, but you know, physics, chemistry, and biology are just the same thing at different layers of zooming in. That's interesting. And it's the same thing here, right? Where you have an NFT, right? Like there's the the most recent NFT that's kind of like getting a lot of attention is the Doge NFT. I don't know if you've seen uh, this one. I haven't seen it. So PleaserDAO bought the Doge, like the the one real Mm -hmm. Doge NFT and has fractionalized it. And so you can go and buy a piece of this NFT on fractional. But now all of a sudden, like the NFT is non-fungible, but it's fractionalized pieces are fungible. So you can put them into a Uniswap pool and trade them with each other, or you know you can build Leverage like perpetuals up. off yeah. of them. And Options. so all of a sudden yep. the NFT and DeFi got completely merged. And then, you know, then you want to govern, you know, please are DAO as a DAO that holds the NFT. So they're not actually separate pieces is, is what's really cool about it. So you, you hit on something there about the, the one real Doge NFT. And this is fun. So like, thanks to <laughs> that, NFTs. Like, that's a very strange sequence of yeah, words to yeah, say. The one real, there was only one true Doge. <laughs> yeah. All Doge enter and one Doge leaves. Yeah. No, thinking about uh, explaining blockchain to people. When I was talking about programmable money and I was talking about bonding curves, generally people would black out. But when I, when I talk about a thin little ownership layer, that's like a phone book of who owns what, like a really simple book that everyone keeps track of, then it's, it's a lot easier for people to conceptualize. So for me, like NFTs are the thing that helped me explain it at dinner parties or what, like, like I'm gallivanting around going to dinner parties. Okay. So I tried right after loot was happening, I was at a wedding and I tried explaining loot to someone who didn't know anything about crypto, right? Like total, (laughs) total noob, like basically didn't know what Ethereum was. And I found it to be very difficult. (laughs) I basically failed. And so I'm curious, like how would you, how do you explain loot without relying on previous knowledge. Yeah, we are back up to NFTs though. Let's, we'll get to loot in a second and SVGs and SVGs and NFTs, but I feel like just explaining the NFT and the ownership layer, that's, that's key. And, and so like, let's, let's talk about the one real doge. Like I can take a JPEG and I can deploy a smart contract and say, this is the JPEG and this is the person that owns it, right? And anyone can do that. That's a permissionless process, anyone with ETH. But the one real doge, is selected by the market. 
And that's what's really interesting. It's not me or anyone. It's the signal of the market saying, this is the one real Doge and, and I will put money on that. And it's probably like where that money goes, probably to the original creators or something along those lines. But what makes it the one real Doge is not some like hard and fast blockchain-y dry thing. I mean, the storage is all there and you can see who owns what, but it's more about the market selecting that right. NFT as like, the one. Even the process of an NFT being the real one is decentralized. Yep, yep, exactly. And you can copy it and you can put it on another chain and it's not the same thing. And, and collectors that are interested in buying those NFTs know that and see that. Yeah, I think this is what's clicking for me personally at another level these days is that you know, with, so I, I recently read Sapiens and I feel like everyone who's in this space should read it and I'd skimmed it before, but it has this idea of imagined realities and in intersubjective It's like religion that, and stuff, right? And it's like basically collective. A lot of things, yeah. right? So the idea of say countries, that yep. these borders are real, like they don't actually exist other than inside of people's minds. But, but this belief, because it's shared by many people, it becomes real. Yeah. And then it starts influencing what happens at the physical layer, right? So because people believe in countries, even though they're not technically real, you have checkpoints at these airports and immigration laws and like all of that. So yeah, so there's these imagined realities and they kind of gain their power in the world because enough people believe in them. So when one of these new imagined realities is, is being bootstrapped off the ground, what you need to do is get enough people to believe in it. And then once it gets to this, you know, it gradually grows. It basically has some sort of a network effect. And once it's in place, you know, any single person could stop believing in it, but it wouldn't actually affect the whole. But if enough people stopped believing in it, then it would stop being real, right? And so, you know, then like, I feel like kind of being in crypto gives you a better feel for this because that's basically happening over and over and over again. Like it happened with Bitcoin where it's like, there's just these bits that were moving around and all of a sudden they, it becomes money, right? We literally like create money. And then it happens with Ethereum. And now I feel like uh, it's happening all the time, like at the micro level, like every, every token, every NFT is basically a shared belief that has been bootstrapped. And that's what's giving it its value. It's not actually the underlying utility. I mean, there is potentially some utility, but the fact that people are kind of coordinating around it as a shelling point is what gives it its value. We could, we could look at Loot, for example. Like, right. basically, he, he minted these NFTs and he limited them at like 7,000 or 8,000. And you basically had to just pay gas to get them. So maybe $50, maybe $100. And then there's this, the floor price, right? This is the belief of what people think it's worth. And that floor price starts at $300 and gets up to $100,000 and then goes back to $30,000, right? Because that, that, group of people like there's only 7,000 of these and people want them and that supply and demand happens there the neat thing that happens with loot specifically since we talked about loot we should probably get into it just because it's like hip and cool I think to put <laughs> so so basically an NFT what goes on chain is usually just like the IPFS hash of some metadata so what an NFT really is is usually just an ownership of a hash. This hash is owned by this person. And what the hash is, is a manifest that's in 
IPFS. And what's in, in that manifest is a name and description and also a link to some image. And usually that image is living in IPFS. So there's kind of like this storage layer that's IPFS. And there's kind of this settlement layer or this ownership layer, this thin layer of who owns what. And that's what makes the NFT up. What, what's cool is what we're seeing now, and I think it probably started, uh, it wasn't Uniswap, it was someone else. I had it on my Twitter. Dang it, I can't remember it right now. Someone told me, actually, uh, Simon DLR told me who did the first SVG. Somewhere on my Twitter. Someone, some OG deserves credit for this. But basically, you in the Solidity, in your smart contract, you craft that JSON file and you craft that SVG file. So you, you're actually drawing the, the picture in solidity. Like this is an ellipse and it's this big and, and it's this stroke and this fill. And then once you have the image, then it's this, it's this JSON and this is the image data and this is the name and this is the description. And so all of that comes straight out of the smart contract and there's no IPFS layer there at all. You're querying the smart contract and it's drawing the thing and then putting it into a manifest and serving it to you. So that is like, to me, that's like super cool. And I did, I did loogies where you have these ellipses and they're like these kind of circles that get fatter or wider and there's a color to them. And so what I'm going to do is set up like breeding of these things and the breeding will all be in solidity, right? You'll mix two loogies and get a new one and it'll be a mix of colors and a mix of width. And it's basically like, I don't know how the, the actual breeding will go, whether it'll be like an averaging of the two things or something like that. But you can do that in solidity with these. And so that's, that's why they're like super legit to me. It's like, yeah. So why, why is that cool? Is it that it's totally contained within you know, within this shared layer that it doesn't need to call out to anything else? I think, yeah, so there's there's no dependencies there. It's hard to do, right? Like writing right. Solidity to write JSON to write SVGs <laughs> is like tricky, right? I, I think, but, but then I think something we haven't talked about yet is just like the composability. The fact that I can make those loogies and then someone else can make some other breeding thing that breeds them, right? It doesn't have to be me that makes them. Anyone else can make any other layer and that stuff is just all on chain and you own your loogie and you can do whatever you want with it, right? So back to loot for a second. All he did was an SVG with white text and he randomized, you know, this is what's in your hand, this is what's on your head, this is the, you know, robe you're wearing, these are the shoes you're wearing. Just mixed them up and basically gave each player a card that shows what loot you have. But he did it in SVG format, so it's like this cool, like, the smart contract itself is rendering these things. You can query the smart contract to see what kind of boots you have. There's no IPFS there. And then that composability and that permissionless ecosystem that, explored, that explodes around that is, is what's really exciting, is the all the other projects that are derivatives of, we saw loot unbundling, right? Where you could just get your gold ring out as one and then you could put them all back together. You talked about fractionalization, right? You can fractionalize one of those NFTs. Since it's a standard NFT, it can do all these other things. Like you, we can throw it into DeFi and it can get weird over there, right? So there's games and all sorts of layers that come out of having that just composable permissionless layer. And then it, it becomes like a shelling point too. Like when it's worth $100,000 and there's only 7,000 7, of them, like, People want those and people want to play with them. And then it, just having those things have value causes all these other things to spring up around it. And that's really exciting. Totally. Like them having value is key to making them a shelling point. Yep. Yeah. Okay. So maybe let's roll back roll, roll, a little roll. bit. Yeah, so yeah, yeah. We, were, we were talking about 
scaffold ETH and starter kits and the NFT starter kit. And I feel like the last the last thing you were talking about was people who are in these orbits and catching that. Maybe just to like talk about this orbits idea because I think it's pretty cool. It's something we've talked about together in the past. So the idea is that when you think about a developer for the first time coming into the Ethereum ecosystem, if you apply a traditional developer growth like perspective Top of the on funnel, that, right? Yeah. There, it's basically a funnel, um, but it's not really a funnel. I mean, so it's it's easy. It's maybe better to think about it as a series of concentric circles, right? Yeah. And the outermost circle is like someone who's heard about Ethereum, just literally has heard the word Ethereum, you know, circle inside of that would be someone who's, you know, spent an hour like Googling around and reading a couple of things. Next circle is someone who spent two hours like hacking on something. But and that's it. It's those hours, like an right. hour or two gets you, gets you one more circle deep, right? Right. Yeah. And, and the, the cool thing is that, you know, this is a ecosystem we're talking about. It's not a singular product, right? So the people are kind of going through these circles all across the world, right? It's happening globally, it's happening via all sorts of channels. There's like, you know, different academies, different YouTube channels, hackathons, like conferences. So uh, it's it's very kind of multi-layered. And you're, you know, like what you've been focused on is like grabbing these people and like bringing them deeper in. Right. Like how, how do you kind of conceive of what you do um, in, in terms of these layers and like what it is you're actually trying to do? So I think I, talk, I think I talked about it at first. I talked about just like making a call out on Twitter and be like, hey, if you're a Web2 dev that wants to get in, just get into my DMs and we're going to have a session and we're going to talk through it. And it was very raw at first and I was trying to do my best to mansplain things. But as we go along, there's things like the cron job talk and there's, there's these other things that I've learned that I can easily deliver these concepts just in kind of a session of, of working through things. So I wanted to scale that, right? Figure out how to have more people be able, like you don't have to get on a Zoom call with Austin to get into, <laughs> get into Ethereum, right? Like there needs to be a, and obviously there's, all, there's a lot of other people too, but like you don't want anyone to be blocked on having to go get a 30 minute mansplain session to understand things. So I started, kind of synthesizing those the learnings from those mentorship sessions into this ETH dev speed run. And if you Google ETH dev speed run, uh, you'll get this medium article and it's basically like, okay, you know, step one is tinkering with solidity, get scaffold ETH pulled down, be able to uh, put in a mapping, tinker with how a mapping works, make a function payable and have the front end change and be able to send in money to that. Basically, get through, get through enough syntax that you're ready for the first challenge. The first challenge is staking, right? And I think a staking challenge really helps illustrate Ethereum's superpower of being able to get people to, to cooperate, right? Basically, you're building a contract that says, we need to get from a bunch of people, we need to collect X amount of ETH. And if by some time period, we haven't collected that ETH, then you need to put that state machine into a withdraw state and people can pull their money out. And, and that goes into why a withdraw pattern and there's a lot of stuff there. If you get to uh, a successful state, then uh, you execute something else and it puts it into another contract. And it kind of like, 
that, that composable piece is done and ready and it kind of hands it off to another contract. So that's, that's challenge one. It teaches you payable functions and date.timestamp. And, and interestingly, I think this is, it makes me um, think of one blog post that Vitalik has that's called uh, Functional Escape Velocity for Layer 1 Blockchains. That sounds like a Vitalik post. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's really good. But basically the, the, the core point that it's making is that you want your Layer 1 to be basically as simple as possible to limit you know, attack surfaces and ways it could go wrong, but expressive enough that anything else can be built on top of it, right, in layer twos. And statefulness, like ability for the layer one to contain complex state is one of these requirements for other things to be built on top of. And it's one of the things that Bitcoin doesn't have, for example, right? You can't, you can't do the thing that you described on Bitcoin. And so I think that's just interesting. Dope. The simple EVM is interesting. And, and it's something that on, an, on a mentorship session, there's this moment where you go to stake into the contract with the front end and you need to put in 0.01 ether or something like that, right? You put in 0.01 ether and you have to hit this really annoying button that takes it times 10 to the 18 and then you get this giant number and you're like, what is this? Why is this happening? And it gives me a chance to mansplain, but hopefully we have better, you know, uh, more scalable methods, but the difference between ETH and way and why we need everything to be a whole number because we don't want the EVM to have to F around with floating point math. So we want this thing to be simple. It just gives you a little bit more, shortens your orbit just a little bit. It gets you a little bit closer to having the, the mental model down. So challenge one. Challenge two is uh, a token vendor. So you deploy an ERC-20, you put it into a vendor contract, and then you sell the, the ERC-20, but you also set it up so the vendor can buy it back. So you create a, a vendor that will buy and sell the token that teaches you ERC-20s, it teaches you contract to contract, and then it teaches you that stinking approve pattern, right? Mm -hmm. The bad UX and understanding that if I want to send a token in, I can't just send it in and have something trigger. I have to go to the token contract, I have to approve the vendor contract, then in a second transaction I go to the vendor contract and have it go get the token, and then in the same atomic transaction I do a bunch of things. And atomic is another thing to dive into on a mentorship session. How things either all work or all roll back. How flash loans work. Like that's, that's a whole another mental unique model. thing yep. to Ethereum. Yep. Yeah. And so challenge one and challenge two just get you like, okay, like I've got a pretty good grip on how all of this stuff works. Then it starts to open up. I do uh, an NFT challenge where you build an NFT and then you add a price function, or you add a gallery to it, then you add a price function, then you add uh, like a price curve. Basically, super, super simple. You don't have to do like weird, you know, math to do this, right? There's no like integrals. When, when you're buying an NFT, it's like a discrete one purchase, like single purchase of an NFT. So you can multiply the, the price by just a little bit. So you have a price as one variable and then you have a multiplier as another. And it's, this is another insight into how Ethereum works. Your multiplier is two numbers because you need a numerator and a denominator, right? Mm. And that teaches you about fractions within Solidity and, and teaches you how, like, how to build a price curve by adding one line of code. It's so fun to do, like have a group of 15 of us on a call 
and I, I have my NFT and I'm about to deploy it to mainnet and everyone's got the jitters. And I just like, all right, I'm going to add a price function. I'm going to have the money go to the build guild. And then I'm going to make the price go up by 3% each time one is purchased. Like three lines of code, compile, deploy to mainnet. Like that, that ability to be able to uh, innovate and try and prototype so quickly is like definitely a superpower of Ethereum. Yeah. It's cool to show off. That's definitely one of the vibes I get from your videos. Like one of the things that I like the best is that you just like ship stuff to mainnet. I mean, like you- It's little boats like, down the gutter. <laughs> you literally, <laughs> yeah. You, I, I mean, I, I feel like I've personally seen you spend a few thousand dollars <laughs> on your YouTube videos <laughs> on gas fees, right? Yeah, yeah. I didn't used to do that. I would say post post buying and selling a couple loots, I have a little bit more ETH to more be able to pay room. gas. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yep. Yeah. Okay, so we've got we've got challenge one. We've got challenge two. We've got the NFTs. We've got the bonding curve or the curve, the price curve for the NFTs. Then uh, the next level is a DEX, learning how a decentralized exchange works, learning why you want a decentralized exchange, learning how those reserves work, learning how liquidity tokens work, but, but zooming in on the price function, showing how the math works with the reserves and how it takes a little bit, it basically leaves a little bit behind in fees. And if you like rattle it back and forth trading, you're, you're, you slowly build up the value within the mm -hmm. reserves. Uh, so just getting someone over that hump is like a another side quest, right? You have to do the DEX side quest and you have to understand what's going on there and you have to understand like why. And then uh, we look at randomness. Randomness is super hard on a deterministic public blockchain, right? Like, and, and there's ways to do it and, and they each have trade-offs, right? We could go with the previous block hash and there are reasons why you don't want to do that because it's kind of predictable. There is commit reveal where it's, it's a lot more random and a lot safer, but there's this bad UX of having to commit something and then remember it and then reveal it later and have that hashed with a future block hash or something like that. And then there's oracles and VRF. And then it's like, well, what's an oracle? And it's like, oh, I, I can show you the world, Aladdin. Let me, let me get into this. And like you learn how kind of you don't want just like an Oracle feed coming from a web server because it's the same thing as you running your cron job in one server, right? Like it can't fall over. It, it has to be decentralized. It has to be as secure as your smart contracts or as close to that as you can get, right? So randomness on chain, oracles, sign messages are, are another thing in the speed run. Just show them how you can do a sign message. You can recover that sign message and that's cool. You can do that off chain. You can do a state channel with that. But having it settle onto a contract and being able to do an EC recover and get the signer opens up all this like weird delegated execution kind of stuff where I can sign a message and someone else can submit it to the contract and, and I own the contract and it checks that it's my signature even though it's some other dude submitting it paying the gas. And so signed messages are a fun one. And I, I think it ends with we do, you, you build a signature based multi-sig. So you build a multi-sig with multiple signers, you know, it's an M of N multi-sig, and you don't store the transactions on chain. You basically have one execute function, and it takes in the two and the value and the data, and then an array of signatures. And you have to make sure, you have to loop through those signatures and make sure that you have enough valid ones, and then you can execute it. And there's some gotchas in there, and I don't want to give it away for any developers mm -hmm. that are listening, but this speed run, this is, this is like level one of 
your journey on Ethereum. Like you, you learn challenge one, challenge two, NFTs, curves, uh, the decks, sign messages, random numbers, multi-sigs. Yeah. And then it's like, where do you want to go work? Like there's a handful of places that if you have that base knowledge, you can go yeah. or, or do you want to become a, a smart contract auditor and go to level two? And go talk with you know a lot more bigger big bigger brains than Austin. Like I, I can get you through level one, and then I can send you off to someone on level two. Or do you want to build a product with with Scaffold ETH? We have all these starter kits. We're going to get you dangerously close to having a prototype, so you can see if you can get product market fit without you know the the months of headache that it takes to build a decentralized app because we just have all these starter kits. Yeah, I mean I I've. I've had a lot of developers recently ask me, like people who are getting into this space, where do I go to learn about building on Ethereum? And it sounds like go to the- ETH dev speed run. Right. Yep. And I mean, this, this is a really solid curriculum to take people through. It's, it's, a, good, it's a good starter, right? Like it, it's basically your license to start learning and building in the space. Well, okay, so this is a really cool insight. If you want to build a decentralized app and you're not a programmer, you think I need to go find a Web3 programmer. And the thing is, all the Web3 programmers are all YOLOing some garbage SVG NFT to mainnet right now <laughs> and trying to make a bunch of money. They're not, they're not going to want to do your cool project, right? No matter how cool it is. So the, the key insight here is if you want to build a decentralized app, what you need to do is find a Web2 developer that's interested in Ethereum. Find one of those, those close orbits give them the speed run, give them some of this content, give them some of these challenges, they'll learn asynchronously. Like I, I hand this out and most people will go through it with a couple questions to me. And then they're ready, like you've given them the knowledge and they're building your thing at the same time. So you kind of like bring them into Ethereum by giving them, they'll build your project first and then they'll pivot and go build their crappy SVG NFT project. <laughs> but first you get them for a little bit as you educate them in. And how long does it take someone to go through this? It depends, depends on the builders. So I did the Ethernaut DAO is a good example where uh, this, this is a kind of a, a small tangent, but the, the Ethernaut DAO, Ollie, right? Ollie reached out to us and said, hey, I want to do this Ethernaut DAO thing. Yeah. And I was like, oh, heck yeah, I, I, I'll be a mentor. And the way, the way it's set up now is there's this big pool of developers that are looking to be mentored. And then someone, some, some gigabrain comes in and says, I'll mentor one or two of you. And really what they're doing is trying to pick the cream of the crop and mentor them and have them come into their company, right? Like if, if you're Joe from Sushi, you're trying to pull someone to come work at Sushi with you. If you're Ollie at Synthetics, you're, trying, you're, you're, you're giving someone the knowledge, but really you're trying to get them into Synthetics. My approach was different. Mine was, I have this curriculum. I'm not looking for one or two. I'm gonna send a message to every single person that sends a message to me, right? And so I said, I, yeah, I'm here to mentor hit me up and then it was just like 40 or 50 developers. You know, I'm a CS student at Berkeley and I'm working on this and here's my stuff. Like, I would love to be your, your mentee. And then I sent him a message back like, awesome, you're in, here we go. Here's, here's, here's the speed run. Like, get Scaffold ETH installed, tinker with Solidity, take on challenge one, take on challenge yeah. two. The, the curriculum is there. And the, the, the way I knew it worked, and I didn't know it was gonna work until this moment, but the way I knew it worked is I sent that to all 40 people. And instead of it being busy work, instead of it being too hard, instead of me having to hold their hands through it, 
I still continuously keep getting these messages from these folks that like, okay, I'm on two now. Okay, mm. I'm on three now. Holy cow, I get it. Like I learned that thing. It's, it's like very, very asynchronous. So like going all the way back around to answer your question of like how long it takes depends on the builder. I think, I think in a concentrated eight hours, you could get through the whole, probably even two hours if you're quick, right? Like we wanted it to be two hours, but like there's some setup and there's some time that it takes. You can probably get through challenge one and challenge two in two hours, but to go through the whole speed run and really understand it, somewhere between eight hours and eight weeks, depending on how effective right. the developer is. Right. So one thing we've talked about in the past is this idea of the tour of duty, yeah. right? Of you, um, you know, when a person first enters the space, they could learn, you know, how to write, soli write solidity, but it actually takes some time for them to grok what sorts of things to build in the first place. Like the thing you're talking about with the cron job, like that, but applied everywhere. Like what sorts of games to build, what sorts of just products and protocols make sense. And I, I think one, um, one interesting way that that manifests is you look at the people, you know, leading the projects of today, and most of them have been in the space for a long time, right? Like they're the OGs who've like been in these waters and they're building something new. So the, you know, what we were thinking through before was how can we have a tour, like you can think of this as a tour of duty, right? You have to go through your tutor, tour of duty before you can build something really interesting. And then the question is, how can we shorten this yep. tour of duty? So are you saying that, I mean, so someone doing the eight hours, do they get to the point? Because they do have a couple of aha moments through that, but what, what happens after that? There's, there's, okay, so there's still like, there's still a little bit of a Zoom session that still happens where we go through and I just like poke at them a little bit to figure out like, do you understand how the gas price mechanics work and how this is a bid and how the block is limited and the miners are greedy? And, and we go into the cron job example. We go into uh, how would you short a token, right? That's a, that's a tricky thing. Like, how do you short a token? At first, you're like, oh, there's probably some mechanism to do that. And it's not. You, like, you borrow the token you want to short. You swap it to something else. Then maybe you leverage that up. But like having to go through that thought process of how that works. So there's still some like, okay, you've, you've tackled four challenges. Let's just get on a call. And, and a lot of me getting on the call with them at that point is figuring out where they're going. Are they, are they going to create a new product? Are they going to become an auditor? Are they going to be a developer for sushi? Like who, who is this person and what does their path look like? Asking them what they'd like to do, seeing what they'd like to work on. So there's a, there's a little bit of just like actual like placement going on there, but some of it's still like refining the the method right like totally if, if i get on and start talking to you and you've gone through the first three challenges and there's like a giant blind spot and i ask you about it and it like is obvious and it's like shoot like this isn't working i've got to i got to fill that blind spot right mm -hmm. so and one of them is gas like I'll, I'll find that they'll get through it and still not quite completely understand how the gas price gas limit stuff works and like that's like a fundamental thing that you should probably like, which makes me think uh, we've got to kind of maybe change up how these challenges work and maybe have some kind of gas based challenge where totally you, you discover how gas limit and gas price works. And then we can kind of refine that speed run and make it better. Maybe even in including layer twos, right? Oh, Cause yeah. like that's a, that's the place where gas gets more interesting. And well, like you go from mainnet to a layer two and 
that like that's also going to become more relevant to a developer's journey. What's what's really interesting there with L2 is is when you see an, uh, a Web2 guy come into the space, he uses Ethereum like a database. He has a big old struct. He or she has a big old struct with everything they want to store and their big old array of structs where everything's going on chain and they're using it like a database. That does not work on mainnet, right? Like that you got to you got to think about gas, you got to think about costs. You you have to really be efficient. But on L2 or or some of these side chains, you can kind of treat it like a database and it kind of works like that. So there's this interesting thing where maybe it will be easier to onboard people. Going back to the NFT, it's way easier to explain it with an NFT. Maybe it's going to be easier to onboard people if they can treat it like a database at first and have those big structs and have it on a side chain and then have the moment where, okay, we got to go to mainnet. Well, everything's going to cost $200 each time you interact with this thing. You, you, know, you may want to look at making it more of an event-based system or something like that, right? Yeah. It, you'll learn really quickly if you're spending 200 bucks of gas. Right, right. So what's the build guild? All right, all right. So we've got Scaffold ETH, we've got the templates. All of a sudden we have these starter kits and challenges and tutorials. This kind of community is building around this thing. And I'm realizing I need help, first of all. But also I need to like incentivize these folks to keep building cool things. And so the build guild, and it's just recently I'm realizing is, is kind of like UBI for developers, where it's like if you're a developer that's gone through the speed run, I know that you have the chops to eventually land at an auditing firm or build your own product or go to a place in the space. I know you're destined for that. I'm just gonna keep you around, right? Keep your orbit tight by streaming you ETH. So I stream ETH to maybe 30 or 40 developers now, and it's developers and artists. And it's a, a, a stream mechanic that I built myself where it's not Sableer where you're just kind of streaming. Sableer is awesome too. If you need a stream, use Sableer and you're now safe, super cool. I needed to build a custom mechanism. I needed to set it up so I could stream to them, but I needed to set it up so they had to withdraw and price their work. And uh, the, the other real important piece is they need to be able to disappear for a month and come back and pick up where they are. What we're finding is these orbits, like people will be around for a while, they'll be doing other jobs, they're working for three DAOs at once, you know, like Web3 is not going to be, you know, You have our, one our job that you, you go into yeah. the office full right. time and right. you clock in and out. Right, yes, exactly. So, so the stream needs to work in a way where there's some cap and I think of it more like a battery charging up, right? Their stream charges up to some, you know, one ETH or 0.05 ETH, and then they withdraw and they price it and they say, here's the PR that I worked on, or here's the tutorial I built, or here's the new challenge I built. And then that stream slowly starts to charge up again. So it gives me the ability to have all these asynchronous workers. I can dump money to these streams. I make sure just keep the streams full, make sure people are turning in work, but it's not like, I'm not tracking hours. I'm not like there's there's just, it's just like so low touch, but it just keeps keeps folks around and keeps building and incentivizes them to create new challenges and create new uh, tutorials. So that's that's the build guild in a nutshell is an incentivization layer around scaffold ETH that kind of uh, kind of UBI for developers, kind of funds developers and keeps them building and keeps them kind of in the space and building things. Yeah. And it was, it was honestly like one of the coolest things seeing you build this because 
we were talking about this idea of Austin's army, right? There's like all of these developers who are kind of going through your materials and you need help building things. And so, you know, the naive solution would have been, let's just hire, <laughs> right? Let's, or let's, you know, more, a more interesting solution would have been, let's give a grant to yep. the three of these developers so they can spend more time on this. And then you just came up with the Build Guild, which is like super crypto native. It's hard to give grants, right? I would say grants are pretty slow. Like second to maybe audits. Audits are probably the biggest pain point in the space, but grant giving is a tough thing and it's hard to know who really needs a grant. There's there's a lot of noise in the space. So even just being able to not have to F around with grants and be like, all right, I'm gonna sell my uni token drop. I'm gonna sell my GTC token drop. I've been dropped these valueless governance tokens, but I can exchange them for <laughs> ETH and I can stream that ETH to developers. So it was just like, I just shortcutted the whole thing. Thank, thank, thank goodness for Uni and some of these other drops, right? They gave, they gave power back to like some of these early users to then like help this ecosystem flourish more. So I'm able to sell that stuff that was dropped to me and stream it to developers to keep building cool things and generic components on top of Ethereum. Yeah. And so what does what does the life of one of these developers look like? Like are they are they doing other things in this space? Like are, what's how do you work with them? I think so. Yeah, I think that they're they're working on different stuff. Sometimes they're working for multiple DAOs. There's there's definitely like a conversation I have with a developer as soon as I like as soon as I can tell like oh this this uh guy or girl is going to deal a lot of damage in the space. They're a damage dealer. They can sit down and build cool stuff. Usually I'll say like, what do you want to do? How do I keep you around? And it's, it's often that they'll either say, I just want to get into the space. I want to be in the space full time. I want to be in the space full time. And then what's interesting is once they get into the space full time, they don't want to do one thing full time. They want to contribute to this DAO because it's interesting and it has something to do and they want to you know maybe help out with nfts over here and it usually comes down to once they're safe and secure and they like what they're doing they rather like kind of dabble in a few different areas and be able to phase in and out of things and build stuff that's interesting to them it's not a traditional like hiring process where i'm just bringing them in to do a task it's much more open and trying to find stuff that they're interested in learning and yeah enabling them well, it makes me, one of the things I wanted to ask you about, and this makes me kind of move to that, is you were the first quadratic freelancer. Right. Right? Yeah. So what was that? That's what cool. happened there? Yeah. So it was early Gitcoin grants rounds, right? We, like Gitcoin was testing out how this whole quadratic math thing could work, how like it absolutely needs civil resistance and how they can create civil resistance. But really it was just a grant where the community could fund that grant. And then there was a big matching pool from the EF saying, you know, whoever gets, whoever kind of wins the, the love of the people gets the most money from the matching round. Kind of a popularity contrast, but more like just getting signal from the community, right? So early signal in the community was, hey, this Austin guy seems to be building a lot of things and, you know, tr trying to raise all boats, right? I can say that a million times. I can I can even raise some boats here and there, but it's hard to sell that sometimes to the EF or whoever. Like, hey, can I get a grant for this? Like, I'm doing good things, I promise. Like, and then it's like, okay, 
tell us exactly what you're going to do and, and what's, what are the milestones? And that, that was harder for me. And I, like, I'm very kind of all over the place and creative and doing mm-hmm. weird things. And I, something will happen. And I, I you know, very unstrategically was not planning on that thing working as well as it did, but it did. Right. And so there's, there's, there's some play there with it. So I had a hard time getting funding, but I had a huge community signal and that was, that was kind of the multiplier that allowed me to get those matching funds. And I think like 70 grand, like when I, when I got, I got my master's in electrical engineering, my first job, I made $70,000 a year. And that moment as a quadratic freelancer, kind of working nights and weekends, trying to get into the Ethereum space, trying to provide value. All of a sudden there's this moment where I get an annual paycheck from the community to keep doing what I'm doing. And I think that was the first quadratic freelancer. That was 70K for a year? Yeah, or? I think so. Well, it was, it was one Gitcoin, well, it was one or two Gitcoin grants rounds matched together, right? It was probably more like a 20 and then a 50 or something like that. I don't, I don't exactly remember, but it, yeah. was, it was enough money to fund a developer to go full time if he was scrappy about it, he or she. So how, how did that feel? like to be supported by the community in that way. Did you expect it? So so I get lots of I get lots of people in the community saying thank you for what you do, like you're so important. But when it comes down to me asking for a grant or trying to get that the 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 validation from the top is never really there. But there was definitely this moment after Gitcoin grants round where like Vitalik wrote a blog post and my picture was in it. And I was like that was like goosebumps amazing right like to get to get recognition for and, and Vitalik even talks about like he would have he would have never funded me like I'm an, I'm just a knucklehead building stuff but the fact that Gitcoin grants <laughs> like did this signal thing where the community said yo this Austin guy really is like yo 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 V like this Austin guy really is doing some stuff you should check it out and 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 then that helped him take notice to like okay maybe maybe we should fund this knucklehead even though he's not like a gigabrain he's doing good stuff and doing UX and doing onboarding and so to me the the biggest validation was from Vitalik but I, I had had the community signal there for a while but it was kind of like you know more of a pat on the back like I'm still like super poor. <laughs> like I'm still like mm. working nights and weekends here. I still have to have a full-time job. Like I know you guys think that I'm helping out and building things, but there's no like putting your your money where your mouth is until that moment. And and that's when I got like that 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 validation from the top. Hearing hearing from Vitalik that like this dude may actually be helping like really helped me feel like my purpose was there and and I was being effective. Yeah. And you, you really started from a truly like grassroots sort of a way. It was like very bottom up. Yep. And then just through doing like good work over and over and over again, right. you earned your way through this. I'm so happy that you are here now. And, you know, it's af- like all of these good things have happened. And it, it really makes me feel good about this community genuinely and, and your situation. So it's really, really awesome. I feel super lucky to be here. Like I yeah. love my job and I, I work a stupid amount of hours, but it's cause I want to and I enjoy it and I love what I do. Right. It, it used to be uh, different, but I love what I do and I'm so glad to be here. And, and it's, it's, I'm so lucky to be able to be effective in, in this role. 
Yeah. I wonder, you know, I've seen you, even when you're talking about the Build Guild, just streaming ETH to developers, keeping them close to that orbit, and really like streaming them the ETH before they've done the work, right? You really kind of give people the benefit of the doubt and lean in. And to what extent has your own experiences, like the fact that you spent years going through this, affected the way you go about it today? What, what I can even lean into there is that uh, I was a real knucklehead when I got in. Like, I got in and I thought I was going to be effective. I thought I was going to build something that was going to be really awesome. And it, it, like, took time for me to, like, learn. So the, the, the strategy or the learning there is that you almost want to reward effort at first. When the, when the blind man comes in and he starts feeling the elephant and he decides that he wants to, you know, push the wall over or climb the ladder, like what, whatever he thinks it actually is, but it's not that thing, you still need to like reward him for like working through that because he's about to learn that this is an elephant and there's a whole thing behind it, right? But at first, if we reward effort and then as they get through that tour of duty, we start rewarding efficacy but at first we're we're just hey you're going through the speed run keep going like you don't know what you're talking about and you're not going to get rich you think you do but you're not <laughs> like i just need to get you through this speed run and get you through this mental model get you through the tour of duty and then on the other side of that you're going to be a veteran that can uh you know your your th- your third fourth and fifth build are just steps along the way, but your six build is a banger and you just release loot. And it's not, not that like that loot is a good, loot is a very uh, edge case example, but your sixth build is going to be something that the community likes, I guess is, is the way I should put that. Like it takes right. a while to build things and throw them away. And if you reward effort at first, it's a lot easier to get a person to be like, not so married to that thing that they're ready to throw it away and try something new. Yeah. In some ways, you're a teacher, right? Like amongst many things, you're a builder, but you're also a teacher. And I wonder what, I mean, like that transition from initially rewarding effort and like knowing that this person is doing the best they can seems like something that a great teacher would do. I'm wondering how, how do you think about the question of like, what makes for being a great teacher versus being, you know, merely a good teacher? Uh, yeah. So actually both of my parents uh, are public educators in a small school and I was raised wow. to be like public educator type my, my dad's just a great teacher and I think that there's, there's empathy there's understanding how a person learns there's presenting it in the right way it's, there's a narrative you take them through there's, there's, there's a lot of like soft touch things that come with educating that uh, I, I think I was just lucky enough to have growing up or have around me and now I love doing it, right? And it's this in this particular field, it's wonderful because it's like I'm teaching gold miners to mine, right? Like it's like I'm I'm giving you the like keys to do some really really neat things, right? It's not like yeah, I'm teaching you through I don't know, learning SQL. Al- yeah, learning SQL. SQL's cool, it's powerful, but like it's yeah, it's more than that, right? It's like teaching the mental model, teaching the gotchas. And, and basically like freeing you to go build some crazy decentralized app or whatever. So it's yeah. a really rewarding, rewarding process for me to teach that stuff. Did you know you were going to be a teacher or is this something that emerged over time? I, I always thought that like, well, I didn't, I didn't want to be a public educator in like 
a school with a hundred kids. Like there's, <laughs> there's not a lot of upside there. <laughs> like I'm, I'm sure that like my math teacher, Mr. Carpenter in eighth grade was teaching me physics and teaching me how to build a Linux machine and teaching me how to write wow. C code. And like, I'm sure that there are times when he, he and I both have like this thought of like, man, I'm so glad I got to do that. I'm so glad it, like he helped me and I'm sure he, he, he enjoyed teaching me that stuff. But like, that's not like that's not at scale right i want to be able to have that like wonderful thing but like with thousands of people and teaching them like you know more being able to scale it up i thought maybe like maybe college professor like that could be a cool role so i i had thought about teaching but it just didn't have the like the leverage i wanted it to until now yeah this what you're doing is like the coolest version of right, being right, right <laughs> like right. Uh, yeah it's kind of crazy like having a build guild where you're streaming to developers and uh it's pretty wild it's it's so cool to go to like we're, we're here at imcon to go to these conferences or uh you know devcon or whatever and have like random people be like bro like you you taught me everything thank you so much like you got yeah. me through all this stuff and it's like so heartwarming to to get that from yeah. like random people not me and mr carpenter who spent hours and hours and days and days right. together this random person i've never met before was able to go through my curriculum and and probably like there's videos of me right like they've probably had like an encounter with a version of me in a video and they feel like maybe we're friends and like, I don't know this person yet, but then all of a sudden I get to know them and hang out and it's, it's cool. But yeah, it's a different scale of education for sure. You're, you're simultaneously at the forefront of education too, right? Maybe. Like yeah. alongside Ethereum and crypto. Well, and maybe like funding decentralized workforces, right? Or figuring out what a decentralized workforce looks like and how to fund them and maybe, you know, what what funding developers looks like Hope, hopefully like some of these tools we're building with the moonshot kind of fit with that that this is like we see things going toward DAOs, we see things going towards governance what are all these tools that they're going to need and then being able to to build and and supply those are yeah yeah well maybe maybe let's move to moonshot now so what is the moonshot collective word okay so Scaffoldeth was the templates, the starter kits, Build Guild was kind of like an incentivization layer. It was kind of like UBI around that. And then uh, Awaki kind of came in and said, let's put a multiplier on the Build Guild, do this similar thing, but, you know, at a bigger scale. And so the, the Moonshot Collective is sort of, it's the Venn diagram of where Build Guild ends and Moonshot Collective begins is kind of blurry, right? It's a similar thing. There's some people that are in both. But the Moonshot Collective is a work stream of the Gitcoin DAO. It, it was funded with 40k GTC, uh, and and we're funding and and mentoring developers to build coordination tools and public goods funding. And just thinking through, I don't know. V Vitalik gets on stage and talks about how we should have sign in with Ethereum, and then immediately on the Trello board of the Moonshot Collective is build a sign in with Ethereum starter kit, right? And so we're mentoring people, we're getting them to build those things. We're finding what the ecosystem needs and, and building out those tools. A another one is the Gnosis Safe starter kit. Go, you go talk to DAOs right now, you realize that a lot of these DAOs that have been constructed in the past with these really intricate smart contracts, 
they're built without having a bunch of people use them. They're built with these complicated systems without knowing if it's going to have product market fit, if people are going to use it the way they think people are going to use it. So there's this theory that I have that what DAOs need is basically just a multi-sig and they need to be able to have a dynamic front end that can settle to that multi-sig. So I use this example everywhere, but I, I talk about like a stability DAO. Say, say you wanted to build a stability DAO where X amount of people all stake one ETH and then they all get to make a decision on where all that ETH goes by voting, you know, should we, should we be in stable? Should we just hold ETH or should we leverage up, right? And you can imagine a front end of, you know, sad face, medium face, smiley face, <laughs> right? And that's all that, that's all that the, the UI is, right? And all those hundred people, they don't need to have like an intricate knowledge of a Gnosis safe front end or how signing transactions or signing on a multi-sig works. They land on a website, they connect their wallet, and then they say, mm, I'm, I'm feeling sad face today, right? And what happens in the background is you've, you've created an experience to them that feels like you're voting in a DAO. But really what you're doing is if I click sad face, I'm just signing the transaction that says we should move our money into die. And if enough people, if enough of those signers all click that sad face, then the, then the transaction gets the M of N that it needs and it executes and the money moves to die or lever, leverage, leverages up or whatever. And so the, the theory here is that we're going to need a bunch of tools and we're going to need to eject funds out of a DAO and we're going to need to have a process that still settles to a multi-sig so it's decentralized, but a process that we can design an experience around. We can design an experience around... Uh, another good example is a results oracle. If a DAO wants to see 100 new people join the DAO, and so what they'll do is they'll create a, a results oracle and they'll put four or five signers on it that are trusted members of the community and they'll say, did we get 100 people in? And there'll be a yes button and a no button. And the yes button signs the transaction to send it along to someone else and the no button sends the money back to the DAO. It's still decentralized, it's super easy to use, you don't have to write any complicated smart contracts, you just need a React developer. And there's a million React developers in the world. You can, you can quickly iterate on the mechanics of a DAO, the experience of a DAO, by just setting them up in the front end and having them settle to a Gnosis safe. And that's just one example of like one thing we're working on in the Moonshot. That's super cool. So that's just one of many projects. So to, to make sure I'm following, so Gnosis Safe is a multi-sig, and when you set one up, you kind of, uh, you know, say how many, uh, how many signatures M out of total possible signatures N you need to kind of trigger an action. Basically so, a quorum, right? A yeah. quorum for a vote. And so yeah. you, you kind of, uh, you have to know who these people are ahead of time when you're, you know, when you're handing it off to the React developer. But then, basically, the, the, the only API that the React developer needs to know about is that they can sign or they can not sign, right? And they kind of iterate on the front end, build various types of experiences, and you're kind of simplifying the, the way that they interact with the Gnosis Safe smart contract. Yep, exactly. Yep, that's a great way to put it. Yeah. And that's, that Gnosis Safe build is just one build. There's also... We're going to release here at MCON, I think tomorrow morning, tip.party, mm -hmm. which is just a fun little thing. Like we're, we're on a call with a bunch of people from the DAO 
and we want to reward them with a little GTC, that's actually kind of a complicated thing. You've got to collect everybody's address. You've got to send it out. We built this super simple little app. You go to tip.party, you type in some words. So we'll be on a call with 20 people and I'll say the word is clown shoe. And everyone types in clown shoe and signs it. And then I get this big list of everyone showing up. What's even better is it does ENS reverse resolution. So I get some civil resistance there too. I see everyone's name show up. And if you don't have your name, you're out. Like if you don't have ENS, like that's the first onboarding process is I sponsor someone to get ENS. So if you don't have ENS, you're out, right? But it's an easy way for me to look through everyone and distribute GTC super like I just say I say a website and I say a word and I get a list of everyone over here and I click one button and distribute GTC to those folks so that's another example of a tool that we needed to coordinate to fund developers a third one is, is similar to coordinate uh, we're doing this kind of it's called quadratic diplomacy right now it's kind of I, I DK Kevin and I are on uh, he yeah so quadratic diplomacy, <laughs> quadratic diplomacy, uh, it's complicated, complicated name is basically just some app, let's say tip party. And we've done this tip party, uh, hit the milestone of mainnet, right? In it, it took two weeks in, in two weeks, it went from, this is an idea to this thing is in production. We're using it and we need to pay out to whoever helped make that happen. So at that milestone, we all get on a call and we have a little ceremony where we say, you know, who did what? Stand up and, and say your piece. And then we give everyone 25 votes and then everyone on the call votes how we should pay out that milestone. Say we allocate five ETH to the main net and then 10 ETH to, you know, once five other DAOs are using this tool or something like that, right? So we have this milestone, we have this amount that we need to pay out, but we can use quadratic diplomacy to basically just pull the group and have the group vote. Then we use quadratic math to kind of dampen so you get quadratic math. Is that really even a thing? <laughs> like it, we, we use the, the same formula that you use for, or they use for Gitcoin grants, where it's the sum, it's the square of the sum of the square roots. And so it, if, if you get lots of little votes, it's more powerful than one big vote, basically. So that helps us kind of pull, pull the builders, find out how we should pay it out, and then in one button click, pay out that 5K in, in GTC to the builders who built the thing. So it's kind of like building tools to help us fund, to keep building tools, to help us coordinate. Like we're trying a lot of prototyping and that, that two week window is really key. The fact that we can go from, this is an idea on a Zoom call to, I'm using this thing on mainnet to distribute funds on a Zoom call two hmm. weeks later. And that's thanks you know, to Scaffold ETH and some great builders. But that like really quick iteration loop is helping us test a lot of different things and we're, we're just getting started. That's super exciting. I mean, this sounds like one of the funnest possible things for a like, developer to work on, right? How, how can people get involved in this? Oh, yeah. So I, I say just like do the speed run, right? Like right. if you Google ETH dev speed run, there's going to be some challenges. And if you go through those challenges and you like, you're going to get an education and you're going to learn about, you're going to learn about building on Ethereum, but you're also going to prove that you know this stuff. Like another build from the moonshot, uh, it's codenamed scaffold.directory. So as people complete these challenges, we're going to have them sign uh, the, basically the, the output of any of these challenges is a URL. You deploy a full live working app. 
So they're going to sign that URL and turn it into the directory. So now you're going to have this list of 30, 40, 50 developers and how far they are through the speed run. If you're, if, if you're looking to hire a dev, you can kind of look through that list and pick them out. If we're, if we're looking for who fell over, we can go find them and say, hey, you know, you, you didn't complete this challenge. How can we help you out? So that there's this like nice directory that we're trying to build too that kind of will help keep track of where developers are on their journey, make sure they're progressing, make sure like, and, and then when someone says, hey, I'm looking for a Web3 dev, I can be like, yo, go look at this website. Mm -hmm. Here's, you know, 60 of them or whatever. That's super cool. It makes me think of the education point again, right? Where it's the, the curriculum, like how far the person is, their credential is baked right in, like they can just gradually like fade into actually working and making money with it. Um, it's really, really cool. The gradual fade in is really interesting because you do challenge one, you do challenge two, you, you work on a DEX, then pretty soon we're on a call and we start talking about what you're thinking about building. And I have a big to-do list over here and I'm constantly trying to figure out how I can give you one of these to-dos, right? So, so like build, uh, uh, build a results oracle with the Gnosis Safe Starter Kit. Top of my list to get done. I'm talking to a developer. He's just finished challenge challenge three or challenge four. He's looking for his next thing. And I say, oh, yeah. you want to build this results oracle? And so it goes from there's this set curriculum to it opens up to now you're checking things off my list for me. And we're, we're getting more and more work done. That's super fun. So basically someone can go and do the eighth dev speed run and within a few days be at a point where they're getting paid and they can even do this part-time right it's not a whole full-time thing they need to commit to they're getting paid to basically prototype and ship stuff to mainnet ethereum while getting you know being a part of this community and getting mentored by people like you yep exactly yep and and it's a lot easier to mentor like there's so much noise and so many people in the space it's hard to know, like me going on Twitter and saying, hey, get into my DMs, let's have some mentorship sessions. Like that worked once, but my calendar was full forever. Being able to have these challenges set up so you can kind of at least like weed out folks that aren't, you know, don't just don't want to sit down and do it, but they'll say, hey, I want to deploy an NFT and get rich. Will you get on a call with me and validate my idea? Like, no, I don't, I don't want to do that. But if you go through the simple <laughs> NFT example and you go through the buyer mints and you build a price curve and you go through... Uh, learning how it decks, and then you say, "Let's get on a call and validate my idea." It, put it on my calendar, bro. Let's let's get on the phone. It's proof of yeah. work. Yeah, proof of work. That's great. Yeah, that's amazing. What are may, maybe gradually bringing this to a close? What are you most excited about right now? So yeah, everybody, and and going back to the it, people like to put things in little categories and. We, we had DeFi summer and then we have NFTs exploding and then there's governance tokens and now all of a sudden the Gnosis safe and all these like actually decentralized things have product market fit and that everyone says, what's next, what's next, what's next? I think we're gonna get to, we're, thing, a few things are gonna collide and it's, it's L2 and direct ramps. I think when you can ramp directly into an L2 and have that smooth, seamless Web2 like experience, but still have it back to Ethereum. I think we're gonna see a huge explosion of games and not top-down games, but bottom-up games where one guy deploys the loot system and another guy deploys the map generation system and 
some other developer creates the XP system, right? And, and maybe you don't want some of those and you want some of the other ones. And so I think what we'll see a huge explosion of games. And I think even zooming in on that, I'm really excited about, and this is like just me being nerdy. Like, I don't, who knows if this is actually a thing, but crafting games. I can't wait to like grab three or four NFTs and put them together and turn them into another NFT that then has this other utility for this other thing. And just playing around with fun game mechanics and, and having it be quick and fast and cheap like that L2 experience that we're hoping we get. Yeah. How, how is that different than building things today, like building the, the SVG NFT? Is it that when you're building games, you're like totally forgetting about this thing being useful and just <laughs> purely focusing on it being fun? I think, no, I think it could be a useful game too, right? Like right. We, could, we could create a game that uh, has to do with carbon credits. And if you don't take your car today and you check in and you prove that you rode your bike, then you get some badge or some token or something like that, right? The games don't have to necessarily be completely pointless. I think the, the fun thing about games, oh, going all the way back to the DAOG, the fun thing about games is it gives us a chance to play around in an adversarial environment and try things out to see if they'll maybe work in the real world. Like start applying some of these real world economies in these games on chain that have real value and see how people interact and see how people work. And maybe, maybe we're prototyping, you know, a new government or a new governance system within this game that eventually gets applied to, to other fields. Thanks. Yeah. That's something we need to dive into another time. Yeah. Yep. For sure. All right, man. Thanks for taking the time. Yeah. Um, this is really fun. Thanks for, thanks for having me, man. Uh, thank you for like your guidance through a lot of this stuff too. Like we worked closely together for like a year or two there and uh, I really appreciate it. Yeah, and, and likewise, I mean, I'm, I'm truly inspired by you. I think you have a heart of gold and just really, really honored to be hanging out with you here. Thanks, man. Yeah. Let's go get a beer. <laughs>